0: So I'm intentionally starting this new message series on Super Bowl Sunday. And it goes back to, what was it? God, it seems like a long time ago, but just 10 days ago to the inauguration and the controversy over Pastor Rick Warren being invited to give one of the inaugural prayers. Now what I heard below the controversy and all the hullabaloo was a fear, and it's a legitimate one, which is not so much that they had a person of faith giving a prayer, But that Pastor Warren's particular brand of Christianity actually plays into one of the things I don't like about the Super Bowl. And there's a lot that I do like. But those of you who have been around for a while know I'm a little bit more of a baseball man than I am a football man. It's that particular brand of winner-take-all. Sort of winners are in the spotlight, losers go home. That's very much a part of the Super Bowl mythology. The practice religiously of this is called triumphalism. And so what I want to investigate today and next week is the history of the use and abuse of religion in our country, with a special emphasis upon how national leadership has shaped religion to its purposes for good and for bad, and also how religion has allowed itself to be shaped for political purposes. Today I want to start at the start, I want to begin at the beginning. When I was doing ministry in southeast Florida, there was a guy named D. James Kennedy who had built a very, very large church, Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale. Any of that name ring a bell to you, D. James Kennedy, maybe see a show of hands. Well, a few of you. His most famous, or infamous, I suppose, initiative is this, Reclaiming America for Christ. Reclaiming America for Christ. Now, D. James Kennedy would give sermons with titles like this. No ambiguity whatsoever. George Washington, the Christian. George Washington, the Christian. Because without that, he felt, well, maybe the whole republic was doomed right from its inception. I want to answer that question real quickly for you. Was George Washington the kind of Christian that D. James Kennedy thought such that we could reclaim America or he would want to reclaim America for Christ? Well, yes. George Washington was an Anglican, actually a vestryman in his congregation, a series of congregations, and through his initiative, that phrase, so help me God, was first inserted into the presidential oath of office. But, there's always a but with the founders. He was also a member of the Masonic Temple, and they played a much larger role in his burial than the church did. In fact, at his bedside, when it was asked, do you want a clergyman? He said no. His final words, beautifully after taking his own pulse, tis well. And he left the earth. Tis well. Once, even when he was traveling on horseback during the Sabbath, he was almost arrested. It was in the small town of Ashford, Connecticut, and what they called in those days a tithing man, which is the version of what they call in Saudi Arabia, The religious police stopped him for riding his horse. He wasn't quite arrested, but he was told in no uncertain terms, you're not allowed to do this. And so he was stuck overnight, and we know this from his diary, that he was not happy about it because he wrote about a crummy little inn. Not a good one, he said, in which he was forced to stay overnight. And then when he went to church that morning, he heard, in a wonderful phrase, two very lame discourses. I will hope to give you one unlame discourse this morning, but if you find it lame, I promise there will be only one. Now notice something going back to D. James Kennedy, who would say George Washington, the Christian. Notice in that phrase, reclaiming America for Christ, there is this idea, not that there is just something to be attained in the future that he would hope for, but that in fact something has been lost from the past. Does this claim actually hold up to scrutiny? Was there ever a time when America was claimed, as he would say, for Christ? It's kind of like the scene in Borat. If you remember the Borat movie, it's right after Borat discovers that Pamela Anderson has been unfaithful to him (laughs) through that little video she and Tommy Lee made. And if you remember the scene where Borat wanders into this Pentecostal church, really in the pit of despair in his dark night of the soul, in a really joking way, um, there's a congressman, Chip Pickering, who is talking, almost thundering assuredly. We were a Christian nation then, we were a Christian nation now, we'll be a Christian nation forever. It's really scary the way he put that because it sounded very much like Governor Wallace thundering on the steps. I think it was Montgomery or Selma, whatever the capital of Alabama was, segregation now, segregation forever, sounding very much like that, were we a Christian nation then? As D. James Kennedy and Congressman Pickering like to say. The short answer, very quickly, is no. No, we were not a Christian nation. The founders shared neither between themselves a single understanding of faith, nor were all members of the same church, nor were often consistent within themselves individually about their own faith and what it signified in their private, regardless of their public lives. And they were divided very often about what role religion should play in the life of this new republic. John Adams, who has gotten all this glorious press through the book and through the HBO special that I know some of you saw, he probably more than any of the founders struggled and was divided with himself internally as to what role religion should play in his life and in the role of the republic. On the one hand, and probably, probably for for the sake of political expediency, he declared in absolutely sectarian terms with the approval of Congress... 172 days to the day before my own birthday, on March 23rd, 1798, a national day of not just fasting and thanksgiving, but fasting, thanksgiving, and repentance. Using very explicit sectarian Christian language, he felt that citizens, not as members of church, but as citizens themselves, had to, in his words, return to their duties of prayer and repentance. Just as citizens, we had an obligation to pray and repent. On the other hand, he also said a little later in life, a little further on down the road, and absolutely lying as we could see I mix religion with politics as little as possible. Well, it wasn't really the case. And just a little bit later in his life, and you know if you studied Adam's life that initially he and Jefferson could not stand each other and really represented two entirely different things in the early republic. But eventually they became deep, lifelong, lasting friends. And Adams, if you saw this in the HBO special, Adams was so consumed with his place in the world relative to Thomas Jefferson's that his final words were not for his beloved Abigail, not a prayer, not to God, but these. Thomas Jefferson still survives. And that was it. And perhaps in a way that seems miraculous for the founders of the Republic, he and Thomas Jefferson both died within five hours of each other on July 4th, 1826, 50 years to the day after the Declaration of Independence. I'll leave that for your interpretation as to what that means exactly. But towards the end of his life, Adams sounded much like Jefferson, wondering in his own words, whether the God of nature shall govern the world by God's own laws, or perhaps, and more perilously, whether the priests and the kings shall rule this world by fictitious miracles. He was divided amongst himself, within himself, about the proper role of religion in his life and in the life of this new republic. I chose this title, Faiths of the founders very intentionally, for we look in vain for something, as some people like to talk about it, called founder's faith, as if it was a singular thing, as if there was an essence to it, an entity. One of my favorite stories about looking and the illusion of looking for an imagined purity somewhere in the past when we cannot find it or think we cannot find it in our own age. is from Elaine Pagels one of the great scholars, popular scholars of early Christianity, said she first went to Harvard Divinity School because she wanted to be able to find an essence. She was so overcome by all the diversity within modern Christianity, she wanted to find the foundation, the, the zero hour, the point at which it was really pure and maybe get back there somehow. And her advisor, upon hearing this question, I want to find the essence, shot back to her immediately. What if there never was an essence? What if from the beginning there has been always contested readings and interpretation upon interpretation. Washington, Jefferson, Adams, Madison were not just one thing. And so we still puzzle over their identity much as we do the mystery of our own identity. And an honest reckoning of who they were keeps us from lapsing into that false sense of nostalgia. You know what that word means, nostalgia? It means the longing for home. Sometimes when we feel ill at ease in our own place, we will imagine that that home might have existed in another more pure time in our history. But it did not exist in relationship to the founders. Past perfect is not a verb tense, but a fantasy land. An imagination that we can find some place better than here, lost in time. Sometimes people wish to portray the image of the founders in popular history as so pure, so chaste, so pious that I want to keep them a little honest this morning. So I'm going to read you right now the bar contents of the celebration after the drafting of the Constitution for those 55 people who drafted it. They had eight bottles of hard cider, eight bottles of whiskey, 12 beers, Starts to build here. 22 bottles of port, 54 bottles of Madeira, 60 bottles of claret red wine, and seven bowls of alcohol punch large enough, quote-unquote, that ducks could swim in them. (laughs) It appears they were less concerned with the Holy Spirit than with the Holy Spirit's liquid cousins. Just to keep them honest. The founders were by and large, men of their age, just as we as people, we are people of our age, imperfect in their own ways and often deeply and cruelly imperfect, particularly in regard to the status of women and to the native peoples of this land and, of course, in regard to the issue of slavery and of people of African descent. But, and this is part of the complexity of dealing with their legacy, They left us an amazing and expansive legacy. Expansive enough to survive beyond their very deep imperfections. When we study inheritance, we know that inheritance helps forms identity and in asking who they were and honestly answering that question, not imagining it, we're also asking who we, the living people, are and who we can be as a nation. Their answer and their particular genius is established in our founding documents. And it is clear when you read those, read those as they are, that there is absolutely no sectarian, explicit Christian religious understanding that forms the basis for them. The Declaration of Independence, it has two references to God. One, to the laws of nature and nature's God, and they meant that wording intentionally. They didn't say to the laws of Scripture and Scripture's God. And of course, that consequential assertion that all people, they would say, men, we've expanded that as we have rightfully. All people are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. These critical and important appeals to the divine were not appeals to a sectarian understanding or to a scriptural one. They were the products of what they call the age of enlightenment. The idea that these universal concepts, which were open to reason and understanding, were available to all people in all times. The relationship of God to the Constitution becomes even clearer because in the Constitution, guess what? There isn't one. There is no mentioning of God in our Constitution. And they went even further, and you recognize how remarkable and progressive they were, that in a time and in a place in many, many different parts of this world where you could only hold office if you were a part of the ruling church that established that country, they made this assertion absolutely without qualification that there was no explicit religious test to hold office. No explicit religious test to hold office and as for religion itself well it's front and center in the first two clauses of the very first amendment of the bill of rights simply beautifully and we are inheritors of this as a free religious tradition as unitarian universalism is congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free expression thereof this is an amazing thing these words The freedom contained in them has changed the world. Now, next week, I want to take a look at applying this principle of non-endorsement and non-interference of the state in religious matters. And actually, that has not always meant that the government has no relationship to religion. Sometimes it's been for good, sometimes it's been for ill. We want to hold that question for next week. Those clauses, the freedom of establishment, the freedom of expression, once they really became real in our early republic, and really not into the 19th century. Once the state quit sponsoring churches, once the state got out of the religion business, it was of incredible benefit, not just to the state, but to religion itself. The free market approach to religion is about the best news all religions have ever had. In 1843, there was a German theologian, a guy named Philip Schaff, who not far from here, a small seminary in Mercersburg, Pennsylvania, he was absolutely struck, so struck by the power that Christianity had in this small community that he was serving, that he wrote back to the people who he knew in Germany and said this, that it has an even greater hold here than at home in Europe, where religion in Europe was enjoined by civil laws and upheld by police regulations. In the absence of that here, religion was able to grow. Religious creed and legal code, when they are conjoined and serve each other, they are mutually corrupting and mutually debilitating to the purpose of each. Now, the founder most beloved to our area, to this greater Philadelphia area, is, of course, Ben Franklin, who simply as he would say, believed in God and perceived the teachings of Jesus to be the best that he knew, but absolutely believed as well that the creeds that had grown up around Jesus corrupted the simple message of those ethical and religious teachings. He was indicative of many of the founders when he wrote this very directly, and it's important to hear this in our time as well. A man who is compounded of law and gospel is able to cheat a whole country with his religion, and then destroy them under the color of law. Mutually destroying. Fortunately, we have many of the founders' pronouncements, not just in the Constitution, but in their own words as to what the right relationship was between this new country that they had founded and religious ideas. There's a guy named John Rowe, R-O-W-E, who blogs about religion and politics, the relationship between state and faith. He's here in this local area. I encourage you to look him up. Now, he asked a question a number of months ago when he was blogging. He wanted to know if that phrase, religion, in the First Amendment referred only to Christianity because there's some people, sometimes they go by the name of fundamentalist Christians or Christian Reconstructionism the folks who believe that it is their job to reclaim America for Christ, to go back to that imaginary time that never existed. They thought that it was so self-evident that the only true religion, the only real religion, was Christianity. That's how they interpreted it. Well, what Roe did is he went back and he found this amazing letter in 1790 from George Washington, the first president himself, to a Jewish congregation in Rhode Island. And this Jewish congregation had written President Washington, most likely wondering about what its status was going to be in this new republic. Would there be real liberty for them as a religious minority? Truly, Washington's words ring so amazing. And his self-congratulatory tone, well, truly would not be (laughs) well-deserved until certain things changed from how the founders had established the Constitution Obviously slavery, people of African descent being three-fifths of a quote-unquote human being, women not having the right to vote. So while he's congratulating himself, recognize obviously we had a lot of work to do. But this is from the text of the letter that he wrote to that Jewish congregation in Rhode Island. The citizens of the United States of America have a right to applaud themselves for giving to mankind examples of an enlarged and liberal policy. Yes, the founders used the L word. There's a policy worth of imitation. All possess alike liberty of conscience and immunities of citizenship. It is now no more. It is now no more that toleration is spoken of. As if it was only by the indulgence of one class of people that another enjoyed the exercise of their national and natural rights. What he's saying it's not just that we are swell fellows, we people who are nominally or truly Christian who have helped to found this nation. It's not that we are just swell guys and we decide, okay, you religious minorities over there, you can have some rights as long as we hope to tolerate you. That is not his argument. And he says toleration is not enough to establish the laws of this Constitution. What he says instead is that all faiths have equality under the law. It is not that the majority grants them to the minority. He is trying to have a stronger foothold for that equality. Added to our Constitution and to our Founders' own writings, we also have Acts of Congress. I found something truly amazing I'd never heard, i never learned, and for me, more than anything else, this kind of settles the issue. In 1797, buried in what they called the Treaty of Tripoli, Article 11, It reads this way, and there's two things. Two things. The first you will get right off the bat. The second I want to go back to. As this government of the United States is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion, this is a treaty that was approved unanimously by the Senate and signed with Adams, President Adams' own hand, into law. I want to repeat that phrase. As the government of the United States is not in any sense Founded on the Christian religion. As it has in itself no character of enmity against the laws, tradition, or tranquility of what they called back then, Muslim men. People who were followers of Islam. And as the said states have never entered into any war of hostility against any Muslim man nation. It is declared by the parties, and here's the second really powerful phrase. It is declared by the parties that no pretext arising from religious opinions shall ever disrupt this harmony. Unanimously ratified. We are not a Christian nation. Signed by President Adams. Not controversial at all in its own age, even enough to conjure debate. There was no debate about it. It just became law. But that second phrase that I want to highlight for you is so powerful. That phrase about religious opinions never causing disharmony between nations. In the seed of that are our founders drawing a line in the sand. The U.S. of A. ought never declare or make holy war. Ought never declare or make a holy war along religious principles. Now, our nations are composed, all nations, and more of just laws. They're composed about stories. And Forrest Church, who's one of my mentors in ministry, wrote a great book that I want to encourage you to take a look at. Indeed, many of the stories and the source material from this message comes from this book. It's called, So Help Me God. And in it, he lays out what he said was America's first great culture war. He identifies two grand narratives in the first 50 years of the founding of our republic. He said, on the one hand, it was associated with the Federalist Party, very often associated with New England, and the Republicans of their time, very often associated with the Middle Atlantic states and on down into the south. He said, on the one hand, the Federalists believed in divine order, almost like the divine right of kings, that unless God in some way, in a very often a sectarian way, could be held to establish order, all would become chaos and this new nation would fall apart. And on the other hand, there was this other story being established, the conception of what Forrest calls sacred liberty. This is what Thomas Jefferson believed in more than anything else. Now, when when you study these two competing narratives, these two competing stories of divine order versus sacred liberty, you get some really cool, absolutely upended historical ironies. You get the very liberal, Unitarian, and Harvard clergyman of his time, Jeremy Balnip, he was a Unitarian, saying, absolutely, I consider politics as intimately connected with morality and both with religion. This is a Unitarian saying this in the 1790s. Whereas, Virginia, the South, the very tip of the Bible belt, if you will, in their Constitutional Convention of 1829, voted overwhelmingly... They were so afraid of religion meddling in the affairs of state, voted overwhelmingly 81 to 14 to bar clergy of any denomination from ever holding elective office. That's how strongly they felt. Actually violating freedom of religion, but violating in the way not to establish religion, but to remove it entirely so that religion would have no effect in their state constitution. President Monroe, by the way, was one of those 81 in favor of barring clergy, of barring people like me from holding and having any hand in establishing public policy. The interesting thing is, of course the irony is, that for many of us, I imagine many of you here today, the side that we relate to, the side of sacred liberty, that civil libertarian side, that side of Thomas Jefferson's wonderful phrase that there ought to be a wall of separation between church and state, well, this wall of separation also served to advance and to expand the most vicious American institution there was, which, of course, was slavery. The side of liberty, the conception of liberty as public policy actually diminished liberty in the land. Typically, it was those New England churches, not the southern ones, that stood on the side of saying, we want more religion, not less. It could not be more different these days in our age. They stood on the side of divine order. And not at all surprisingly, they were the last churches to have their state sponsorship removed. The reason, however, was not just slavery. Filed this in the department of the more things change, the more they stay the same. The reason that some people wanted this sense of divine order of God and religion intimately intertwined with the state, was the French. Was the French. Now, it's not quite as silly or as inane or just outright asinine as the Congress in the wake of the disagreement over the start of this most current Iraq war saying the congressional menu will no longer include French fries. They will include freedom fries only. There were a few more things at stake in their age. And it had to do all with the French Revolution because the French Revolution, which had started with liberté, equality, fraternité, true grounding spirits, brotherhood, and sisterhood. Well, the French Revolution had come undone. The French Revolution at the end of the 1700s and into the 1800s, that spirit of liberty, equality, and fraternity had vanished And Paris had become the site of political terror and vicious anti-religious crusades and, of course, that image of political terror, bar none. The guillotine, chopping down to chop off the heads of those who were considered the enemy of the state. This fear of the French, in the time somewhat legitimate notwithstanding, the Federalists and President Adams and the preachers who supported them and benefited from this sense of divine order, eventually they lost out as the state moved further and further away from explicit connection and embrace of religion, and vice versa. Religion moved further away from the state. It didn't happen perfectly. It didn't happen all at once. But the movement was clear that religious liberty, not religious authority, was becoming the practice and the law of this land, but the story of this emerging consensus around religious and national liberty—it was not an easygoing tale. I believe they called President Monroe his era, the era of good feelings. A lot of the stuff that had rankled the earliest founders that had started to settle down, but that era of good feelings would not last long not with the cognitive dissonance of the brutal reality of slavery in this sweet land of liberty. And so a new story emerged and needed to be told about America, and it brought back to the fore this issue of religion. It is a story not just of liberty or authority, but a story of deeply spiritual concepts, of tragedy and sacrifice and repentance and repair. These deeply spiritual realities in our young land both produced the man who is known as Lincoln, a tall man with a heavy heart and the quickest of minds and an absolutely expansive soul. And this age and this new story was produced by Lincoln as well. We're going to start next week with Lincoln and the reemergence of the religious question and the question of the Civil War. But Lincoln, after his assassination, was remembered with these words from Walt Whitman. Dead Poet Society only gave you the first line of it. It's important to remember the deeper expression. That Whitman, who believes most firmly in the Union, in the Union as a universal religious concept, and held Lincoln not just to be his captain or his hero, but also his spiritual father. And so at war's end and the Union was maintained... Imperfectly, but it was maintained, but also at the cost of Lincoln's own life. Whitman wrote these words O captain, my captain, our fearful trip is done. The ship has weathered every rack, the prize we sought has won. The port is near, the bells I hear, the people all exulting. While follow eyes the steady keel, the vessel grim and daring. But, oh, hearts, 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 oh, the bleeding drops of red, where on the deck my captain lies, he has fallen cold and dead. Truly in a religious spirit, Whitman wrote the United States themselves, not the government, but we the people. We the people, the U.S. of A that we ourselves are essentially the greatest poem. And we leave our poem here for now, blessed that we who are in America with all its imperfections have the chance in Whitman's spirit to continue writing its next stanzas. Amen. And may you live in blessing.